Happy Monday, Liberty Lions. And if you like to start your day like I do with a cup of coffee, I've got something amazing to tell you about. And if you don't, well, this probably just isn't the pre-roll advertisement for you. I would recommend just skipping ahead about a minute. And, uh, you know, I'm not going to waste your time. If you don't, if you don't like coffee, I'm not going to convince you in the next 45 seconds. But if you do, I do hope you'll try out our amazing new coffee brand called The Morning Roar. We have partnered with our friends at Anarcho Coffee to bring you this delicious medium dark roast. And when I say delicious, I am not pulling your chain, my friends. I actually consume this coffee myself. I imbibe it. I take a little sip, and I make that sound, ah, and I know that I am now ready to start my day. I'm ready to roar my day away with the morning roar. So please do check it out at lionsofliberty.com slash coffee. You'll get 10% off your first order, and if you join our Patreon at $10 or higher, you will get a hefty 15% discount. And trust me, that discount is going to add up once you try this coffee. It is absolutely fantastic. Again, that's lionsofliberty.com slash coffee. You'll also find links to everything you need over in today's show notes, which you can find conveniently located over at lionsofliberty.com slash 413. It's time to start your day, just like the Lions of Liberty do, with a morning roar. My guest today is the president of the Future of Freedom Foundation and the author of the book, The CIA, Terrorism, and the Cold War, The Evil of the National Security State. I'm very pleased to welcome, for the very first time, Mr. Jacob Hornberger. Jacob, are you ready to roar? Well, that's an interesting question, Mark, because actually my junior high school was called the Lamar Lions, and ah. the school newspaper was the Lions Roar. So I have a lot of experience <laughs> in this year. <laughs> wow, so you've been roaring since long before I ever even thought about it. Exactly. So it's great to be here with you. Thank you for having me on. Awesome. Well, it sounds like this was meant to be. We just didn't know it till now. Yeah, well, it's happened, and, and I'm looking forward to it. Awesome. Well, Jacob, since it is your first time roaring with us here on Lions of Liberty, we're going to start where I always start with first-time guests, and that's at the beginning. So why don't you describe to the Lions of Liberty audience just how you first became interested in politics and the ideas of liberty? Well, I was practicing law in my hometown of Laredo, Texas. I was a, a Democrat, and, and which most people were in Texas at that time. And that is I so went, hard to even believe right now. <laughs> yeah, I know. But, but it, it uh, sort of shows you how how um, quickly over the decades, uh, sort of these these definitions and what the parties even mean can sort of flip flip themselves on their head. Yeah, and and actually that shift toward republicanism started at around the same in Texas. Started at the same time I discovered libertarianism, and I was went to the public library looking for something to read and. I found these four little books that had been published by the Foundation for Economic Education in New York, and I started thumbing through them, and they just, boy, the scales were just dropping off my eyes. I, I, I realized, you know, what, what lies I'd been told and growing up in high school and junior high and college, and so uh, I started, that was my beginning to libertarianism. So I started searching out more books by the authors of those essays, and that's when I discovered uh, Ludwig von Mises and Hayek and Leonard Reed uh, and so many others. And so 
I essentially put all the trial books away that I'd been studying as a young lawyer. And I just started pouring over libertarian books. And that started my journey toward libertarianism. And then ultimately, I got offered a job at the Foundation for Economic Education. And that was in, 19, in the late 1980s. And then after serving as program director there for a couple of years, I decided to strike out and start my own foundation. And that's how I ended up here at the Future of Freedom Foundation, where I've been for 30 years now. When you think back to that time when you were um, you know, putting away those law books and really digging in uh, to the ideas of liberty, what, what was there in particular that, that stood out to you about these ideas overall? Or maybe there was one specific essay or author that stands out that really made you say, okay, this isn't just some interesting thing I'm looking into. Like This is something I'm passionate about. This is something I have to really pursue. Well, it, it mostly revolved around the poor. I mean, I, I grew up in what the Census Bureau uh, said was the poorest city in the United States per capita income in the 1950s. And uh, it was Laredo, Texas. It was on the border. Uh, but it was intriguing because when you cross the border into Nuevo Laredo, Mexico, here was extreme poverty. So as poor as Laredo was, it was actually very prosperous compared to Nuevo Laredo. And and that intrigued me. You know, I couldn't figure out why a river of the Rio Grande would make such a difference in standards of living. <laughs> and, I, of course, I didn't answer the question. But when I went back to Laredo to practice law, I was – uh, serving on the Legal Aid Board of Trustees. I was the ACLU rep in, in Laredo. And I really believe that government should be taking care of the poor. And the, the Legal Aid Society provided, uh, that where I served on the Board of Trustees, provided f- free legal assistance to poor people. Uh, and then, so as I'm reading these books, they're saying the exact opposite. They're saying, they're saying, that this is actually the cause of poverty, that when you, when you have government taking care of people, you're, you're guaranteeing an impoverished society. Well, this was a shocking notion. I mean, it remains a shocking notion to many people today because it's, it's so counterintuitive. Uh, but the idea was is that if you want a, a society with rising standards of living, that you, you have to have a society where people are free to keep everything they earn and decide for themselves what to do with it. And that, this, that leads to capital accumulation. It makes people more productive. That's what raises wage rates. And that was one big argument. That was the utilitarian argument. But then there was the moral argument, that it's simply wrong to take what doesn't belong to you. Now, we all understand that it's wrong to steal. But this, these essays just caused me to think in terms of, well, when government's doing it, taking money from a person to whom it belongs in order to give it to a person who it doesn't belong, that's just as immoral as a private thief doing it because you're doing it through force. And so that raises this whole concept of the welfare state, the, the mandatory charity, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, education grants, where that had such a powerful effect on me that that's just immoral that what, what is moral is that people be, be free to make these choices on charity for themselves. It's definitely a story I, I've heard before. I mean, Mary Ruart, uh, when I interviewed her, had a very similar story where she got into these ideas because she was so concerned for the poor and for a long time had the sort of typical sort of progressive or liberal or whatever you want to call it answers to things. And it was only when she found the right ideas and realized that the thing she was advocating was actually creating the poverty, was actually creating those conditions. Uh, how do you go about combating that? Because it is very difficult. I mean, I live out here in California and it's, it's so hard to shake the idea that because 
because you don't want the state to be uh, performing a certain act, like redistributing wealth or, or that sort of thing, that that makes you callous, that, that libertarians are just callous and don't want the poor to see assistance. Whereas, you know, people like you and I and Ms. Ruart, we're in many ways in this because we care about the poor and we want to see these, you know, the conditions that create poverty completely eliminated. And we want people to voluntarily help each other. But how do you convey that to people that just have the, the status mentality? It's, it's extremely difficult. And, and I've come to the conclusion that uh, after 30 years of doing this, that you really cannot convert people, that people have to convert themselves, that you, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. And we provide the water. I mean, we, we're putting out this principal case as to why this is a way of life. This is a s- system, a, free, a genuine free market system that, that is the only way to raise people's standard of living. And then you just have to wait to, for people to discover that. And some people will never discover it. They're, they're, they're strongly committed to, to what we call statism, the idea that the state should be taking care of people. But there's also a large number of people in America that are realizing that something's wrong. They just don't know what it is. And so that's why I keep saying in the libertarian movement, we have to just keep adhering to principle and in, in hopes that enough people will come and say, oh, OK, the libertarians have it right. And one of the big things that that impacted me growing up on the border was the issue of, of, of immigrants and borders, illegal immigrants, because, you know, I've been I've worked with illegal immigrants. I grew up on a farm on the Rio Grande. They're the hardest working people I've ever seen. So when I got back to Laredo. I asked the federal judge there to appoint me to represent illegal aliens for free or illegal immigrants. And so he, he agreed to do that because I wanted to question the whole, the whole constitutionality of the whole scheme. And so as I was doing this and I was sitting in a detention center one day uh, waiting for my client to come up and I saw all these guys milling around, it just occurred, it just struck me. You know, and remember, I'm a leftist at this point, a liberal, mm-hmm. and it just struck me. If, if liberals love the poor, needy, and disadvantaged as much as they say they do, and you're right, they attack us libertarians. They say, you hate the poor, needy, and disadvantaged because you want to dismantle these programs. I asked myself, why are they treating these people like this? I mean, here they are in this detention center, and all they, all they wanted to do was come in and work. Right. And these are the poorest people you'd ever find. So I went to my leftist friends, and I said, how do you reconcile this? I mean, I was really struggling with this issue. And he says, Oh, they, they always gave me, they gave me the stock response. Well, Oh, the law is the law. Well, I said, yeah, but that's not a real answer because the law can be immoral. It can be unjust. And they just would scoff and not answer the question. Well, then I discovered libertarianism and, and the concept of open borders and open immigration. And I realized, Oh my gosh, libertarianism has, they've got it down. It's, it's, it's consistent all the way through. You you get rid of all the death and destruction and the abuse that comes with immigration controls. You have free movements of people. You have accumulation of capital. You have the moral case involved here of liberty and choice and so forth. And it, it just was a beautiful philosophy that came game all together for me. Uh, again, not to beat a dead horse here, but it's, it's really kind of uh, interesting to hear that you're getting that sort of law and order argument from the Democrats at the time. Like that—that that was their point of view. Uh, strong border controls, uh, not, closed immigration. That was the Democrat point of view uh, 30 years ago, and now things have well semi flipped on their head. I wouldn't say completely, but uh, th- it's interesting because a lot of what you're saying, maybe maybe not the immigration stuff, uh, but a lot of what you're saying about you know the welfare state and that sort of thing. I think a lot of people that come from a conservative 
conservative or Republican background, at least in the in the modern sense of the term, uh, might be sitting there, you know, nodding their heads, agreeing with you. Uh, but then when you get to some other things that you talk about, namely some of the things you discuss in your book, uh, the CIA, terrorism, and the Cold War, the evil. And I love that you use the word evil of the national security state. You're not just doing this analytical breakdown. You're actually describing the evil of these institutions. Uh, I think you're going to get a little more resistance, though, from, from the conservatives and Republicans on a lot of the stuff you advocate when it comes to uh, these agencies. So why don't we start with the big one here, with the CIA. Uh, what's the problem with the CIA? I mean, I, I know you're not an anarchist. I know you support sort of, uh, I guess, basic limited functions of government. And I think many people from that side of things would say, uh, you know, well, one basic function of government is sort of uh, protecting, you know, protecting the citizens and providing security. And the CIA is just uh, an extension of that because they are collecting intelligence to keep us safe. So where does that idea go wrong for you? Besides, besides everywhere. (laughs) Well, we have to keep in mind that, that we, that our government started out as a limited government republic which is the opposite of a national security state. We, we live under a national security state now, but uh, a national security state is a totalitarian type of governmental structure. North Korea is a national security state. Cuba is a national security state. China is a national security state. Pakistan, Egypt, Saudi Arabia, and so is the United States. But it wasn't always this way in our country. It started out as a limited government republic. Now, what's the difference? Well, if you had told our ancestors at the time of the Constitutional Convention, when they were when they were presenting the idea of, of a new federal government structure, remember they had been operating under the Articles of Confederation for 13 years, and, and under that governmental system, the federal government didn't even have the power to tax. That's how few and limited its powers were. But oh, they, those were the days. Man. Yeah, well, if you had told these people that they were going to be bringing into existence a national security state with a CIA that was a secretive agency with the power of assassination, torture, indefinite detention, surveillance, the NSA, secret surveillance, a giant military establishment with bases all over the United States and the power to detain Americans and to put them into military dungeons or detention centers or bases all over the world, they would have laughed. They, they would have said, go, go, go take a hike because there was so much antipathy to that form of government. Now, things change that, and that goes on for a hundred, more than a hundred years, 150 years or so, where we operate under a limited government republic. Everything changes at the end of World War II. And the America is transformed. The federal government is converted into a national security state, which is a totalitarian form of governmental structure. You have secret surveillance in totalitarian countries. You have assassination. You have indefinite detention, all the things that we have now. And the idea was, yes, to keep us safe. We have to have this conversion because we have to be like the totalitarian communist countries in order for Americans to be kept safe from a communist takeover. Well, I question that notion. Now, it took me many years to come to this in my libertarian evolution. But to me, the whole Cold War was nonsense. You you don't ever abandon your founding principles of liberty and limited government in order to keep people safe from totalitarianism, because then you're you're defeating the purpose. You're becoming totalitarian uh, and you're adopting methods of the totalitarian communists like assassination and torture and indefinite detention in order to defeat them. And, but at the very minimum, once the Cold War ended, Americans were entitled. They had the right to the restoration of their limited government republic, and they didn't get it. 
And instead, the national security establishment, the CIA and, and the, the Pentagon, they go into, into the Middle East. They start intervening, the coups, regime change operations. Now, this has been going on for since the beginning of the national security state, the, the coups and the regime change operations. But, you know, the Persian Gulf War, the sanctions against Iraq, developing all of these uh, anger and resentment uh, for people that manifest themselves in count terrorist counterstrikes like the, the attack on the World Trade Center in 93, the USS Cole, the U.S. embassies in East Africa, 9-11, later ones, all in retaliation for U.S. interventionism. So, so they, they, they lost their official enemy that had justified their power in existence, the CIA, the Pentagon, the, the NSA, with the end of the Cold War, ostensibly. Uh, so they, they, they create this new enemy called terrorism that is totally eviscerated the Bill of Rights and, and the other protections we have in the Constitution. And, and that's what people don't want to confront is that, you know, you hear this, this, this kind of slogan sometimes, that, oh, we're losing our freedom, Jacob, we're losing our freedom. Well, that train left the station a long time ago. We are not a free people. There's no way you can be considered a free people when you live under a regime that has mandatory charity and a national security state. Uh, in order to achieve genuine freedom, you, you have to get rid of the mandatory charity. You got to get rid of things like the drug war, which is a paternalistic notion. And you've got to dismantle this national security state. I mean, you're right. I'm not part of the libertarian wing that, that supports anarchy or anarcho-capitalism. I believe in a limited government republic, which was, again, our founding principle. Uh, but that necessarily means dismantling the CIA the NSA and the Pentagon and the huge military establishment. So people have to make a choice. And that's what I say in my speeches. If you want security, if you want to be kept safe, and that's you're right, that's what the CIA says. We, we're here to keep you safe. If you want that, then you have, you're necessarily rejecting freedom, that you either have to choose freedom or this pretense of security. And, and the reason I say it's a pretense, because you end up insecure anyway. So you, you might as well be free and in, and, and insecure than, uh, than to have no freedom and no security anyway. So it's not really, it's a false choice. Uh, but my choice is I want to be free, and therefore that necessarily means dismantling this, this totalitarian type of governmental structure. Jacob, what, what would you say to people that you know, might hear what you say there and, and maybe even agree with parts of it. They might say, you know, yes, I, I concede that a lot of the CIA's activities and our military act activities overseas over the decades uh, have caused some blowback, have caused some of these instances that we've seen, whether it be the coal or, uh, you know, attacks, uh, uh, the 9-11 attacks even. Uh, but then they might say, look, but you need to be realistic here. I mean, we live in a real world. And now that we're here, there are people out there that do want to harm American citizens, that do want to kill us. How how should our government, uh, as as you would describe a minarchist government, that that should you know there is a somewhat of a legitimate role for security or or that kind of thing. You know, how would you combat this sort of thing? How would you deal with a terrorist attack? Uh, and or you know whether it's uh, overseas or abroad, how would you deal with the fact that American citizens are attacked for whatever reason it might be? Well, the first the first thing to keep in mind is is that the reason that there's so much anger and antipathy toward the federal government, as well as Americans indirectly, is because of what the government's doing overseas. I mean, you, you didn't see any of this problem during the Cold War. 
there was there was virtually no talk of, of terrorism or Muslims. It was always the communists, the Reds, the Chinese, the, the Russians are coming to get us and so forth. Because a national security state always needs official enemies. And so if you get rid of if you bring all the troops home, you stop the killing and you stop the death machine and you get rid of these forever wars, then you, you have you have effectively eliminated the anger and antipathy that people around the world have toward Americans. And the only reason they, they dislike Americans is because they sometimes conflate American citizens with the federal government. Uh, the, the, our own officials do this and when actually they're two separate entities. But if an American, let's say somebody does get just hates Americans in general and he, and he comes over here and he kills a bunch of Americans in a shooting spree. Well, that's a straight criminal offense. I mean, you prosecute them. That, that's one of the limited functions of government that I think is totally legitimate. Prosecuting people and, and, you know, what a lot of people don't recognize also is that terrorism is a criminal offense. I mean, it's, it's in the federal code. It's in the U.S. code. Uh, that's why there's prosecutions for terrorism and why people, they're sent away to the penitentiary who commit acts of terrorism. Because in the U.S. code, it is a criminal offense. Now, if an American travels overseas and he gets assaulted in, say, Italy, well, he can't expect his government to come in and, and do something bad to the murderer. He, by traveling overseas, he takes his chances. Life is not risk-free. If somebody doesn't want to take the chance that something bad is going to happen to him in a foreign country, don't go to the foreign country. But if you, if you go overseas and you get attacked by somebody, assaulted or whatever, you take your chances under the criminal justice system of that country. But we've all been raised this notion that the federal government's this international daddy or God that should go around the world and stomp out monsters and, and bad conditions and, and keep us safe in other parts of the world, which is a ridiculous and very destructive notion. Because in the process of having a government that big and that powerful, we lose our liberty here at home. And we've seen this now living under this structure of indefinite attention, potential assassination. I mean, did you ever think when you were growing up that you would live under a government that has the power to assassinate American citizens with impunity? The courts have said we're not going to get involved if they make a decision to do that. And it's not just a fantasy. I mean, this actually happened. Obama uh, literally ordered the drone assassination of an American teenager. I mean, and that that pretty much, I mean, got away with it. Yeah, I, I, he, seems, he seems to be walking free right now. So I'd say it's safe to say he got away with it. Yeah, in the Supreme Court, it was Anwar al-Awlaki. He was the teenager's father, and then they later went and got his son, and and it was all approved, and and the, and the Supreme Court upheld it. Uh, so that is now the type of regime we live under. You, there is no way that you could be considered living in a free society when you have a government that wields that kind of power, even if they're not exercising the power. And it's that kind of power that, that our ancestors tried to prohibit and successfully prohibited for 150 years with the Fifth Amendment, where they said you can't kill people without, a, without notice, like an indictment and charges and a trial. Uh, and that's that was our system for 150 years. The government lacked the power to kill people arbitrarily. Uh, well, that's all gone out the window with the, the post 9-11 evisceration of the Bill of Rights, which the Supreme Court has upheld. So that's what I would argue is, you know, the, the best um, article, that, or the best speech that anybody can ever read in this area is the speech by John Quincy Adams on the 4th of July, 1821 to Congress, where it's called In Search of Monsters to Destroy, and people can read it online, uh, where 
Adam says, look, it's not the role of our government here in this country to go abroad in search of monsters to destroy, whether they're dictators, civil wars, famines, uh, uh, terrorism, whatever, that our government's going to just stay right here at home. If there's an invasion, that's one of the uh, legitimate functions of government, to protect us, to mobilize uh, support, to, to protect us in case of an invasion. But that's it. Uh, and they're not going to go abroad to do these things. And then, interestingly enough, they also said, but that's not to say we're not going to offer any support for people that are suffering these things overseas. And that's where the concept of open immigration came in, that for more than 100 years, America had open immigration, which was saying, we're not going to send bombs and missiles to help you out if you're suffering under tyranny or oppression or starvation or famine. But if you can get out, you can always know that there is one place you can come that's not going to deport you back to your homeland, uh, that you're free to come in, open borders with no questions asked. That, to me, was a beautiful system. Don't go abroad with all your bombs and missiles, which is what the CIA and the Pentagon do today, and then use as an excuse to take away our liberty here at home when the blowback comes. But if you want to come, we will, uh, we will not stop you from coming, and we will not deport you to your homeland if you do come. I love how that ties back in with, uh, you know, how we were discussing immigration at the beginning, because it really is all a part of the broader philosophy. You know, the way to help people uh, isn't to drop bombs on them. <laughs> it isn't to go to their homeland and, and destroy the towns and cities and even the ter- tyrannical governments that they live under. It's to open your arms and, and say, hey, come join us here. Uh, we're, we're not going to create a welfare state for you, even though we have, but under, under you know, what we would view as the, the, uh, the proper role of government, uh, we're there to be one. Uh, but come here and be free and you too can can create a life like so many others have here right i mean it, it, it's a great system and and it and it provides an incentive for the the country of origin to start reforming because as they start losing their best people they start realizing uh oh we need to do something here and i mean you see it here domestically you know we we've had the greatest free movements of people zone in history where there's no restrictions on on movement within from one state to another state. Well, people leave uh, California because the taxes are getting so high. Well, that might induce California to say, maybe we better do something about this by lowering taxes. And so it's, it's, a, it's a great system because it, it causes the, the, the country of origin to start thinking of reform as well. Hey, friends, I got to take a quick pause here to tell you about another great libertarian podcast out there. It's called Free Man Beyond the Wall, hosted by the artist formerly known as Mance Raider, now known simply by his real name of Pete Raymond. And I got to tell you, Pete is a machine. This guy brings you a new episode of his own every single Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, and he has done some absolutely fantastic in-depth interviews. He's had on everybody from Ron Paul to Thaddeus Russell to Phil Labonte, the lead singer of All That Remains, a very diverse group of guests, not always libertarians. He also did a great show with a Washington, D.C., insider lobbyist revealing a lot of the dirt that goes on behind the scenes in DC. He has done so many interviews that I have just said, darn, I wish I did this one myself. So I really do want to highly recommend checking out Freeman Beyond the Wall. You can find it over at freemanbeyondthewall.com as well as iTunes, Stitcher, and all those fancy podcatchers out there. 
Well, Jacob, um, I'm kind of curious, what do you think the greater purpose of the national security state is? It, it kind of came together uh, originally, like you described, to combat communism, uh, supposedly. And now I guess it's just expanded and expanded in order to combat, as you described, this new sort of very, very vague threat of terrorism. But if these aren't the real reasons for it, you know, if it's not really to combat communism, if it's not really to combat uh, Islamic terrorism, then why is it there? I mean, who are the interests that that support and uh, continue to grow the national security state. It's money and power. Uh, now, now they would never acknowledge this. I mean, you talk to your standard general or to your standard quote defense contractor, um, and he would say, "Oh no, no, that uh, we're doing this to protect America, and that boy, the troops are over there protecting our freedoms." And and they convince themselves of this, but really, objectively speaking, it's about power and money. There's a lot of people that that live in the national security state within the military establishment, within the CIA, the, the NSA, they love this power. I mean, th this is omnipotent power. This is dictatorial power. I mean, who's going to control the CIA? You know, the CIA goes and does these drug experiments on Americans called MK Ultra, Operation MK Ultra. Ooh, I'm they, glad you brought that up. Oh, it's a horror story. I mean, they subjected innocent Americans to to these illegal, unlawful drug experiments, exactly what a totalitarian regime would do without telling them, without their consent or knowledge. And then when, when it was discovered, they just destroyed all the records so that Congress and the American people couldn't figure out the, the full nature and extent of this program. Nothing happens to anybody. Nobody goes to jail. Nobody's even fired. Uh, this, this is total power. Uh, they destroyed the videotapes of their torture sessions. Again, with impunity, they lied before Congress uh, and they get a little slap on the wrist like the CIA director Richard Helms got a little slap on their wrist when he committed perjury before Congress, lying about the regime change operation in Chile in the 70s. So th this this is a regime. This is a type of system that is incompatible with a free society. And like, like I said earlier, people just have to choose. What do we want? Do we want freedom or do we want this thing, this, this totalitarian apparatus? And, you know, again, my choice is freedom. MK Ultra is a particularly crazy one because it's the kind of thing that it sounds like a science fiction novel. Like, people don't believe you when you first bring it up. They say, oh, that's like, you know, in those movies. And then you're like, no, those movies are based on this real thing that happened where the CIA attempted to create a mind control program and uh, injected people, well, not injected, but, you know, gave people LSD and uh, put them through all sorts of crazy stuff. And this is all known. It's not even really disputed. I mean, they just, like you said, they destroyed a lot of the, the actual evidence of it, but uh, it's a well-known uh, program that is essentially known to it exists. There's even a connection to uh, the Unabomber, I believe, was actually uh, in involved in that in, in some way. So it's, it's pretty wild stuff. That's the kind of thing where uh, it can either red pill someone or just make them think you're completely insane. Well, right. And, and th there were there were people who who actually you know committed suicide um, th th because of this thing. Well, there's the famous case of Frank Olson, right. who was a I mean, they, they say he committed suicide. But now every indication is uh, that that they may have murdered the guy. And there's a great documentary on Netflix on that case. But at the very least, they acknowledge that their LSD experiments on him, which they had not told him they had done, their claim is that he committed suicide because of it. The family's claim is that they actually murdered him and that the, the suicide was just a cover. But regardless, the fact that there's people doing this and they're all well-intentioned. I mean, you know, they think that they're, they're doing the right thing when they do these, these horror things. And uh, that's what makes them so dangerous. I mean, oftentimes you, 
people are much more susceptible to danger of having their liberties taken away by people in the government of zeal that think they're doing the right thing. And that's why it's not enough to bring the troops home, Mark. You know, that's, that's what you know, a lot of people believe now. Let's bring the troops home. It's not yeah. enough that you've got a cancer that has been attached to our governmental system. And that cancer is the national security state. If you excise that cancer, which is what ordinarily how you treat cancer, you try to cut it out of the body. And here we're trying to cut it out of the body politic. Then you're left with a healthy, limited government republic that doesn't have these, these totalitarian type agencies doing these totalitarian type things to the citizenry or to people around the world. So how do we excise this cancer? How do we get rid of the CIA, uh, the, the NSA, uh, the Pentagon, these organizations that, that cause all these problems overseas and, and internally here? Uh, how do you actually get rid of it while maintaining what you would describe as the legitimate functions of government? How do we make sure that they don't just you know, rename the CIA something else and then do all the same stuff? I mean, how do you actually get rid of that cancer? Well, that's, that is where eternal vigilance comes into play, and that's where the power of ideas come into play. I mean, first of all, the American people need to be made aware that their indoctrination, that they live in a free society, is just that, indoctrination. And, and that's the indoctrination to which I was subjected. When I discovered those little books in the late 70s, I truly believe I live in a free society. And that's what really distinguishes, one of the things that distinguish us libertarians from non-libertarians. We have broken through the indoctrination. So when people say, oh, Jacob, we live in a free society, we know that's just a lie. It's just nonsense. Well, okay, so people discover they're not free. How do they do that? Well, they have to start reflecting on what is the role of government in a free society? Uh, is mandatory charity uh, like Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, et cetera, the welfare state consistent with a free society? Is a national security state consistent with a free society? And, of course, we say no to both questions. And so then people have to decide, well, do they want to be free? And if they decide yes, and if enough number – if enough Americans decide, yes, we want to be free, then all of a sudden things are going to get interesting because now you have a critical mass of people demanding freedom, which means a dismantling of the CIA, which, which means simply a, a repeal of the National Security Act that set them up of 1948 and the NSA in 52. Uh, so – at that point, let's say you get that, well, yeah, there's always the danger that public opinion can shift back to welfare statism, warfare statism. But that's where you know eternal vigilance is the price of liberty. People have to stay aware. They, gotta, they have to watch, make sure these things don't happen. I mean, we're, we're dealing with human beings, so there's no perfection here. But we'll always be dealing with the likes of people that want governmental power for the sake of power and for the sake of money. Uh, and so it's there's that constant conflict. I say you have to have government. That uh, that's why you know, I'm opposed to the paradigm of anarchy. That you need this structure, and that freedom presupposes this structure. But the structure itself is dangerous. And 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 but look how successful it was with a Bill of Rights and a Constitution. It lasted. The limited government republic lasted for more than 125 years. To me, that's a big success. But when people shift, and that's what happened, we had a tsunami of, of public opinion shifting toward welfareism or socialism um, and, the, and the warfare statism, uh, the national security statism because of fear of communism and so forth, and now fear of terrorism and Muslims. It's very difficult. You, you can't blame this on the Constitution. 
because the Constitution is like a seawall. Uh, a seawall pr will protect a community from high tides, but it's not designed to protect a community from ma a massive tsunami that comes in, or in our case, a tsunami of public opinion that wanted socialism, wanted interventionism, wanted imperialism. Uh, what we have to do is get that tsunami receded and get American opinion back toward in favor of a limited government republic and a genuine free market society. Well, Jacob, as I hear you, you know, speak so passionately uh, about this stuff, it really brings up uh, some of the rumblings and rumors that I've heard lately. Uh, there are some thoughts out there that you've been considering uh, running for the Libertarian Party's presidential nomination. I believe uh, Scott Horton, our friend Scott Horton, has big, been a big proponent of that. Is there any truth to this? Have you been considering this? Well, I am contemplating the possibility that uh, I used to be active in the LP. I was served three terms on the platform committee. And um, I was a keynote speaker at one of the national conventions. And, and then about 20 years ago, I just decided to drop out of politics. Um, I, I, to be honest with you, I don't like the political process. Uh, it's, it's, it, there's a lot of negative energy that goes into politics that, that, that is extraneous to the advancement of liberty. And I decided that I would be better served to just devote my life to the Future of Freedom Foundation and to the libertarian movement generally and advance liberty you know, in, the, in this arena, the educational arena. But, you know, I, I've gotten to a point where, where I'm thinking that, you know, I, I, I want to be free. I want to live in a free society. And, and if there's any chance of that, I, I'd like to just fight as hard as I can. And so I, I'm contemplating the possibility of jumping into the political arena uh, and seeking the LP presidential nomination. So I, I've been visiting state conventions. I think I visited seven or eight or nine in the, in the spring. And it's been a very fascinating and enlightening experience because there's a lot of people, new people that have come into the party in the last 10 years or so. And it's clear that they have never heard this principled, uncompromising, pure case for libertarianism. And when I'm giving the speech, the title of my speech that I've been given is called Adhering to Principle is Everything. I can see that some of these newbies, their eyes are as, they're as wide as saucers because they, they, they're so accustomed to hearing the case for vouchers and, or getting libertarian-leaning conservatives on, on regulatory commissions to bring liber, you know, free market choice provisions to government agencies. And they've never heard this, the case for dismantling these programs for what a genuine free society entails. But I, I can tell I'm hitting some chords. And uh, so I'm thinking that you know, I, I, I might do this. I, I'm, I'm contemplating the possibility. All right, so you're not ready to make the official announcement here on Lions of Liberty today. <laughs> no, sorry. <laughs> not ready for that yet. I was hoping to get the breaking news. Uh, I, I am curious, Jacob, you know, you mentioned you are, you are a minarchist. You do support very limited government, but you do support government. So how would you sell yourselves to people in the party that consider themselves anarchists or anarcho-capitalists? Uh, many would call them the heart and soul of the party. Um, you know, their, their attempt to keep things as principled as possible all the way down to following the NAP 100%. So how would you present yourself and your ideas is uh, to, well, to the entire party, I suppose, but specifically to that wing of the party who might be some of your harshest critics. Well, as, as one of my anarchist friends, and I do have anarchist friends, said to me recently over at really? the Really? They let you Fest. come hang out? <laughs> <laughs> I was speaking at the Porkfest Festival, and he came and told me, he says, as an anarchist, I can tell you that you are my favorite minarchist. That I <laughs> well, <laughs> and, that's not bad. Well, and I've, I've written an essay, a six-part essay, Why I Favor Limited Government, that is on, is on the website of the Future Freedom Foundation, FFF.org. And I, my argument is that 
my concept of limited government does not violate any principle that the anarchist promotes because I don't believe in taxation. I mean, I, I, I think taxation is theft that I believe that a limited government can be voluntarily funded. And so if you have a limited government that is constrained with the, the functions that I believe in, prosecuting murderers and rapists and thieves, protecting us in the event of an invasion, which is a non-existent possibility today, and providing a judicial branch where people can resolve disputes, torts, contracts, business disputes, and so forth, that didn't violate anybody's rights, that kind of system. And so it's really not that much different in principle from the anarchist position because the, the anarchists keep thinking, well, a limited government violates the non-aggression principle. No, it doesn't. Not if you have it voluntarily funded and its force is strictly defensive. So that if you're not murdering, raping people, you don't have anything to worry about. You're never going to see this limited government. Uh, so that would be my response to the anarchists. And then I would just remind them some of my best friends are anarchists. <laughs> some would even say that what you're describing, the way you're describing government really is anarchism in a sense. It's at least at least morally speaking in the way they would describe society, you know, that it, it doesn't necessarily matter what the actual structure is as long as it is voluntarily funded, as, as long as it is not violating uh, the NAP, uh, the non-aggression principle. So, uh, you know, perhaps you're not as far apart as some might think. Well, that's right, except for the fact that the government ha does have, under my concept of limited government, does have the monopoly of force to it, that it's the final arbiter. And th this is one of my, my differences with anarchists is that I say you have to have a final arbiter, uh, that you can't have this multiplicity of private agencies because who is the one that finally makes the decision as to whether this guy committed murder or not? If you have two conflicting jurisdictions and one says he, he's innocent and the other one says he's guilty, who resolves that? And, and I say you have to have a final arbiter, right or wrong, just or unjust, you need to have that final arbiter. So, and you have to have a monopoly force that decides when is force appropriate. I mean, you know, under anarchy, you could have a grocery store owner saying, well, if you come in here and steal a grape, I'm going to kill you. Well, under monop the monopoly state government, the, the, the state, the elected representatives of the people, society would say, no, we will decide when you can use deadly force. And stealing a grape, you're not going to do that. And if you do it, we're going to prosecute you for murder. That's one of the reasons I like the concept of limited government. It's not perfect because, again, we're dealing with human beings, but I think it's a much better system than one where there is the potential for perpetual conflict between security agencies when they cannot arrive at a mutually agreeable decision. Well, this is a debate that uh, I could host entire podcasts on, <laughs> and perhaps, perhaps we'll do that down the road if you do actually uh, end up announcing for the presidential nomination, or perhaps it's a debate we'll see at a, an upcoming Libertarian convention near you. Uh, but either way, Jacob, I, I really do appreciate you taking the time to come on the show and share your ideas about these issues. I think you're a powerful voice for the ideas of liberty, regardless of, of your, your final thoughts about, about how society society should look. Uh, before I let you go, I want to give you a chance to offer uh, you know, everything you've got coming down the pipeline, uh, talk about your work at the Future of Freedom Foundation, and uh, feel free to bring up anything else you'd like to plug. Yeah, well, thank you very much, Mark. It's been a real pleasure, and, and you handle the interview great. You give me a chance to explain my answers, and I really do appreciate that. And if people want to learn more about FFF, come to visit us at FFF.org. We have a daily 
publication called the FFF Daily, which we strive to make the best libertarian commentary page on the internet daily. We have a monthly journal called Future of Freedom that's $25 a year. We have a weekly internet show called The Libertarian Angle that I host with Richard Ebeling, who teach a libertarian that teaches at the Citadel and who used to be president of the Foundation for Economic Education in New York that I mentioned previously. And we've got Tons of videos. We just gave a presentation out in Las Vegas at Freedom Fest uh, with James Bovard, Richard Ebeling, and me that's just been posted online, a video. And we got tons of other videos. We got books, all with the idea of presenting this principal case for liberty and with the faith and confidence that these ideas matter. They can shift society toward the free society that all of us want. So thank you for letting me do that. Of course. And Jacob, I really do appreciate it. Again, you coming, taking the time to come on the show today and uh, speak about these ideas. And, uh, you know, I guess uh, stay tuned. We'll see. We'll see what other uh, forums we may hear you talking about this stuff. Uh, and until then, keep up the great work, Jacob. Keep on roaring. Thank you, Mark. Roar. <laughs> Likewise. All right, kitty cats. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Jacob Hornberger president of the Future of Freedom Foundation. I'll link to a few of his articles on abolishing the CIA uh, and the Future of Freedom Foundation over at today's show notes. Again, you can find those at lionsofliberty.com slash 413 because this is the 413th episode of this flagship Lions of Liberty podcast. But it's not just me here every Monday. I wouldn't have to call this the flagship Lions of Liberty podcast if it was just me. It would just be the podcast. But we got more. It's each and every week we bring you three Unique formats hosted by three different hosts. You get three shows for the price of one, and that price is free. This is the original Libertarian Variety Show, the greatest Libertarian Variety Show on Earth. After the flagship show on Mondays, when I bring you interviews and roundtable discussions, as well as the occasional debate every single Monday, you've got Brian McWilliams smacking you upside the head on Wednesdays with his weekly shot of comedy, culture, and liberty on the uproarious, outrageous, electric liberty land, while our good Good man, Odie. John Odermatt wraps things up every Friday on his hard-hitting and inspiring look at the broken criminal justice system on Felony Friday. We do all this just for you, my friends. It's all for free, but it can be for more than free <laughs> if you so choose. By supporting us on Patreon, the show is almost entirely listener-funded. We do, of course, have a few advertisers, including our friends at Anarcho Coffee, which you heard about at the top of the show. Again, lionsofliberty.com slash coffee to try a delicious cup of the morning roar. But we are largely and almost entirely funded by our listeners. That is you. You can do that at our Patreon, patreon.com slash lionsofliberty. And we don't just beg and plead for money. We load you up with tons of bonus content, uh, bonus segments with guests. We do conspiracy corner degenerate gamblers the legion of liberty dune the league of liberty will return i promise you that we do so many bonus shows because we really value the fact that our listeners our supporters send us their hard-earned money and we want to make sure that you guys get value from it so we work our tails off to make sure you guys get great content over there at our patreon little little trick if you sign up at any point in the month you're not going to get charged until the first of the next month and you get access to all the content in this time so Hint, hint, wink, wink. You could sort of give yourself a free preview if you wanted. I'm not saying you should, but I'm not even worried about it because the fact of the matter is you're not going to want to cancel. You're going to love all the great content you get. And even just interacting with us in our secret Facebook group, you can join that level for as little as $2 a month. You can become a lion cub. You don't get access to all the, the uh, general content that we do, but you do get to hop on over to that secret Facebook group. Show us a little love and we'll show you a little extra interaction. Uh, you also get the live streams of our drunken Democratic debate 
recaps. Had a blast doing those. We actually got a month off this month in August. Isn't that very exciting? But we are going to be recharging because there will be more Democratic debates in September. And when there are Democratic debates, there will be Lions of Liberty drunken Democratic debate recaps. That is our promise. We shall fulfill it each and every, well, each and every whenever. Whenever the hell they hold these things. But there's going to be a lot more of them. So strap yourselves in, my friends. Grab some drinks. Join us for those shows. And keep joining us three days a week here at Lions of Liberty. Be sure to hit that subscribe button so you don't miss a darn thing. Until next time, folks. Live long! And live free. <laughs>